0: Well, thank you so very much, Brother Gabriel, for those kind words of introduction. To give honor to whom honor is due, let me express my appreciation to to Dr. Colin Dye, the senior pastor of this church, Gabriel's been my host, other members of the ministerial team here, and the entire church, for the opportunity to spend this weekend and this day with you. It's been a blessing to me. You've ministered to me by your encouragement, your presence, your prayers, and the powerful fellowship of this church surely the Lord does inhabit the praises of his people Amen. and just to be lifted up by that this evening hmm, ask a question this Sunday evening a question that might be on someone's mind here and that is who can follow Jesus the most characteristic things Jesus said was not to walk up to somebody and ask a theological question he didn't say, what do you think about election or supererogation, what do you think about, he didn't use any big words, in fact, he walked up to people and said the most simple thing that anyone can say, two words, follow me. Did you ever think about that? Sometime in church language, we use big polysyllabic, multisyllable, technical, conceptual words. Jesus didn't do that, he walked up and said, follow me. And people dropped everything and started following him. Who can follow Jesus? I'd like to talk about four kinds of people, four stories of people who followed him. (laughs) You know, sometimes I've been in conversations with people who seem to suggest to me that if you follow Jesus, he turns you into a Christian clone, that everybody's the same way, kind of the bland leading the bland. Nothing could be further from the truth. The same God out here on the extension of every human being made this. This is the opposing thumb. It has enabled the human race to do what we've been able to do, strange as it is. The opposing thumb. The history of humanity is out here at this (laughs) appendage. Now, I could do without it, I don't want to. But I could, but you know what? Out here at this extremity, he has made every one of you just a little bit different. So in the history of all of humanity, every one of you is just a little bit different out here at something you don't really have to have. He's a God who never made any two seascapes the same, any two mountainscapes the same, any two snowflakes exactly the same, nor any two people exactly the same. And I wanted to come proclaim to you that you will never be the more you that God intended you to be than when you come to Christ. When you come to him, he makes you the you he intended you to be. So let's set aside this thing of Christian clones. You're never more distinct than when you come to him. And let's look at four different kinds of people who came to him. I want you to open the first chapter of John's gospel, the beloved gospel, the last living eyewitness of Jesus. When all the other eyewitnesses, apostles were gone. Here was John, nearly 100 years old, writing this letter. Probably in close to what is today Izmir in Turkey. He wrote this letter, 100 years old. Remembering the first followers of Jesus. Let's look at four kinds of people and see if you see your face reflected in any of these persons. First of all, there were those people who followed him who were asking life's biggest questions. In John chapter 1, verse 35, read in verse 35 again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. It's about the 10th hour. (laughs) Some of his first followers were those who were asking life's biggest questions. This bizarre character was out in the desert. We call him John the Baptizer. He dressed like yesterday and sounded like tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone with any spiritual sense was out there standing tiptoe, agog, heart beating, Palms perspiring, breath abated, eyes wide open because God was moving in this bizarre man named John who said, repent, God's about to do something. They came from Jerusalem, from Judea, from across the Jordan, from Galilee, out in the desert. I guess John didn't know the first three laws of of real estate, location, location, location. He, He was out in the middle of nowhere. And two of those with him were John, the author of this gospel, and another man from Bethsaida, a Greek-speaking town. And they were out there because they were asking life's biggest questions. Bethsaida was a Greek kind of city on the border of the Holy Land. And the Greeks had always asked the question, where are we from? What are we made out of? What is our destiny? And just like today, Greeks had materialists on the one hand, and those who believed in a soul on the other. The materialists were just like the materialists today. And that is you are nothing but a combination of atoms and molecules, a fortuitous walking bag of protoplasm that's here today and gone tomorrow, and that is it, nothing more. Ne plus ultra, nothing beyond that, the materialistic view of life. (laughs) Uh, Not too long ago, I was preaching at the First Baptist Church of Raleigh, North Carolina, near Duke University, one of the great American universities, and they sent me to dinner with an astronomer. To tell you the truth, I was a little bit intimidated. I didn't know what to talk to an astronomer about at dinner. So what do you say? Twinkle, twinkle, little star? I didn't know anything. (laughs) So I said, well, 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 how big do you people at Duke think the universe is? Well, he shot right back. He said, "Uh, uh, we believe that it's 14 billion light years to the edge. Well, I was eating uh, (laughs) my hamburger. I said, would you say that again? And he said, if you rode a beam of light at 186,000 miles an hour, that's the speed of light, it would take you 14 billion years to get to the edge of the universe. Now the materialist believes that on this planet, 25,000 miles around at the circumference, my car has four times that many miles on it. In this tiny planet, you and I are nothing but an accident. We came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, in a vast and lonely universe. The Greeks were asking questions, where did we come from? Others said no. You have a suke, you have a soul. You have something about you that's more than just material. It's interesting how Jesus responded to these who asked big questions. He sensed that someone was walking behind him. <laughs> you know, we call that having eyes in the back of your head. You just feel like somebody's back there. He turned around and said, what are you looking for? And they said, where are you abiding? Where are you staying? and look what he did. He didn't drive them, he didn't drag them, he drew them. He said, come and see. Jesus won't drive you and he won't drag you, but all the time he's drawing you. And they came and they saw, and John and Andrew stayed and became followers. At the university where I teach one day there'd been a student to uh, Christian revival in one of the chapels and it had a huge sign all week back up behind it before we had these beautiful digital screens it had a painted sign and they were carrying out this canvas sign and it said, Jesus is the answer. And a cynic said, well, what's the question? <laughs> If you believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, now the cosmic Christ, (laughs) ultimately, he's the answer to any of life's big questions. Why are you here? Where are you going? What's the nature? Are you just an animal? Do you die like a dog? Is there a God? Is there a judgment? Is there eternity? We proclaim that Christ is the answer. You know, it's interesting if you just weigh the evidence. Now, not, not far from here, at Oxford, Richard Dawkins, the, the, the professor for the public understanding of science, said it's a delusion. I don't have to tell you that, he's world famous. Uh, Christopher Hitchens has said God is not great. He knows the answer of that now. Uh, before that, Bertrand Russell. Before that, Sigmund Freud. An illusion, he called Christianity. You have those on this side of the balance. But look at the other side if you put them on the balance. Think with me. What if on the other side there are millions and millions of people who say, I have experienced the power of Jesus Christ in my life. Now just give it this odds. Let's say that there's one chance out of ten one chance out of 10 that these millions of people who say, I know Jesus Christ, he lives in my life, he's changed my life, let's just give them one chance out of 10 over against uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and Bill uh, 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 and, and, and and Sigmund Freud, y- y- just say that. Let me put it to you this way. What if you went out to Heathrow watching jets take off and every 10th jet crashed. You're just out there watching. it. Huh? Sometimes it was number one. Sometimes number seven. Sometimes number four. But every 10 crashed and burned. How many of you would get on a plane that day? <laughs> I mean, so I just got to fly today. I don't care. I didn't see a single hand go up. Now let's suppose there's one chance out of 10 that the millions of us who along with eyewitnesses say Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and he's changed my life. Don't you think it's at least considering that? You see, the challenge of Christianity is the witness of millions of people, not just these eyewitnesses that say, he's changed my life, answering life's biggest questions. Incidentally, You can be an intellectual and follow Christ, right up at Oxford University today. My friend and world-renowned Christian author, theologian, man of letters, and biochemist, Alistair McGrath, those three earned terminal degrees can stand toe-to-toe with anyone in the world talking about biochemistry or literature or theology, and he says Christ has changed his life. There's no intellectual embarrassment asking the big question. Somebody came in here, and I, I don't have to, I don't have to wonder, I know. There are people all over this sanctuary who this very week have wondered Is there anything on the other side? Was <laughs> Jesus raised from the dead? Does my life have any meaning? And the gospel proclaims you find it in Jesus Christ. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That word in Latin, abunda, means wave after wave of life. But here's another story. Who can follow Jesus? Look at this. (laughs) You can follow Jesus if all you've got is potential. (laughs) Look at story number two. These are short, short stories. Find it there, verse 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah. It's translated the Christ. And he brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he says, you are Simon Bar-Jonah. Already knew his name. But when I'm through with you, you're gonna be Cephas, which means a rock. All Simon had to offer Jesus was potential. That means he hadn't done anything yet. We call him the big fisherman, a rude, unlettered, Galilean fisherman. His name's interesting, Simon Barjana, means Simon, son of a dove. Jonah, J-O-N-A, is the Hebrew word for dove. Now a dove is a flighty, capricious, unpredictable animal. Spontaneous. You never know what a devil do, fickle. You're Simon the fickle. (laughs) Simon capricious. Simon unpredictable and impetuous. But when I'm finished with you, you're gonna be a rock. (laughs) He saw him not for who he was, but for who he could make him. One of the most amazing things about this story is that Jesus looked at someone with his little promises, Simon, and said, I'm gonna make you a rock. In fact, the church will look back to you as bedrock someday. In all four lists of the apostles, he's always number one, this unlikely man named Simon. (laughs) You know, potential means you haven't done it yet. (laughs) Potential means he can lead you to do it. You know, when I was thinking about this message, I thought about one of the greatest evangelists in history who actually not only in the United States, but came to London and shook this city against all odds. His name was Dwight Lyman Moody, Dale Moody. He had no education. In fact, Spurgeon said that Moody was the only man he ever knew who could say Jerusalem as a one syllable word. (laughs) Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem. He was a shoe salesman in Chicago. He taught a Sunday school class of little boys. He used to chase them down the back streets of Chicago to get them to come to Sunday school. They called him Crazy Moody. He'd chase these little boys. Nothing but potential and the power of God on his life. When he preached, thousands of people came to Christ. Jesus looked at a shoe salesman, illiterate, chasing boys to go to Sunday school and turn him into one of the most powerful evangelists in history. He looked at Simon, son of a dove, and said, I'm going to make you into a rock. Out of this crowd tonight, somebody's been given up on. (laughs) Maybe given up on by everybody. Friends gave up on you, family gave up on you. Worst of all, you've given up on yourself. Let me assure you that there's someone who hasn't given up on you. He specializes in looking not at what you are but who he wants you to be. Michelangelo, the famous artist, not the Ninja Turtle. Michelangelo, the famous artist, painted the Sistine Chapel. At a time in his life he was living in Rome but he had to go back to Florence, the city of his birth, to take care of some family business. He went to the trade guild where the sculptors work. He was a sculptor and Marvel. And as he walked around there, he saw a huge block of Florentine marble that no one had done anything with in years because it had a flaw in it. They'd given it the name, the giant, but nobody wanted to spend years chiseling away and then run into this flaw, wasted years. But Michelangelo walked around and around, the giant, this piece of marble, and he started sculpting. And out of it came one of his most famous statues or sculptures, that of Moses. Moses out of a flawed piece of marble. Somebody asked him, why did you do that? And he said, as I walked around it, I saw Moses in it. Whoever one else had left it alone because it had a flaw. He said, I didn't so much sculpt him as he was in it I let him out of it. Now that homely little story can be true of you as well. Where anyone else sees flaws, mistakes, missteps, and waste, Jesus knows how to take all of those things and use them for his redemptive saving purposes. And if the only thing you have to offer him tonight is potential. You haven't done anything yet spiritually. He sees who he can make you. That's what grace means. Well, wait a minute, story number three. <laughs> Some ways this is my favorite. Uh, <laughs> the first uh, two stories, uh, somebody else has taken the initiative. Here, Jesus takes the initiative. He, he, uh, next day, He wanted to go to Galilee, that is he wanted to begin his public ministry. He'd been in the carpenter shop for 30 years. One day, when he was having a warm cup of coffee with his mother Mary, he said, I'm gonna go down where John is baptizing, and he went down and stepped into this chapter. But he wanted to go back and start his ministry. That's a big thing, but it says first, as a priority, he sought out and found Philip. And Jesus, at his initiative, said, follow me. Now, Philip is an interesting character in the 12. He became one of the 12 apostles. And he's interesting in this regard. The three times that he shows up, he just seems to be, uh, well, for a better word, clueless. (laughs) He just doesn't seem to know exactly. You know, he's... Here's 5,000 men plus women and children. They've been following Jesus all day. They haven't had a bite to eat. And Philip says, "Uh, they're hungry. (laughs) Some Greeks came to see Jesus. and He had to get Andrew to read. He just, Philip might be cold, your, your average disciple. You know what Jesus did? He sought him out. The word in the Greek New Testament is eureka. I found you. It's an interesting word. Out in California in the great gold rush of 1849, when they found gold, they'd cry out, Eureka! meant, I found gold. Here, Jesus found Philip, who was not drafted in the first round of the apostles, and said, I found you. And Jesus must have said to himself, now he's going to belong to the ages. Clueless. I wonder. Came in here tonight, maybe you weren't even planning to be here. But the truth is, you don't know what's next. I mean, literally, somebody here may not. I don't even know what in the morning holds for me. No less my life. Come close to me. Jesus specializes in looking out and finding people who don't know what's next. And saying, follow me. And if you put one foot in front of the other and stay as close to him as possible, he will show you what is next. Understand this. The Christian faith is not mean a big hand comes out of heaven and says, now hear this. This is the map for the rest of your life. Not at all. Not one of these men knew where they were going to be headed when they started following Jesus, but they knew he was worthy to be followed, and he led them all the way to their eternal destiny. Now, I can promise you this. If you really follow Jesus, you'll have an adventure. There's nothing boring about it. Philip just put one foot in front of the other and started following because Philip was clueless, but Jesus gave him a clue. Now, here's story number four. <laughs> the cynic, the smart aleck, the know-it-all, the unteachable. <laughs> Philip, he says, I want you to see Brother Nathaniel. So they say, well, Nate, Nate, Nathaniel gives us our word. Nate, we found the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. Well, the smart elite says, yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. You'd think that it might be mentioned in the 39 books of the Old Testament. Nazareth was not mentioned by the greatest map maker, geography, the Jews, Josephus. Nazareth, if you'd put it in your GPS, wouldn't even come up. <laughs> and his first word was a word of cynicism. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, a smart aleck, cynic, unteachable, know-it-all. I had a psychologist tell me not long ago that there's nothing you can do with somebody who's unteachable, and that's often the case, but there is something Jesus can do with somebody who's unteachable, and that's that he can pull off a sheer miracle and get their attention. Look what he said to him. He, he, he said, okay, Nate, <laughs> I saw you when you were under the fig tree, meditating. Now that was the equivalent of walking up to a total stranger and telling them, uh, I know both your username and your password. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean he had a pair of binoculars and so on, no. The fig tree was in an enclosed, an enclosed area, a quadrangle of a Jewish house. And the rabbis said that you sat under the fig tree when you meditated on the coming of the Messiah. And, and instantly, Nathaniel knew that Jesus literally knew where he was and what he'd been thinking. And look, he does the biggest 180 in the tree. He turns around and says, my Lord and my God. That's a pretty big change from saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus said, I saw you when you're under the fig tree. That is, I know you. I know what you were thinking about. I know your very DNA. I've got the key to your diary. I've got the username and password. (laughs) I've got the combination to the wall safe of your head, Nathaniel. And he did what it took to convince a cynic and an unteachable know-it-all. Now, you may want him to do that, or you may not. Because sometimes that's not the most pleasant thing that can happen to you. It's really better to come to Jesus because you want to follow him than for him to do what he can do to get you to follow him, but he'll do what it takes. <laughs> Story out of my own pastoral life, one of many I could tell. At the church uh, where I serve, in Fort Worth, at Texas, Lone Star State in the southwest of the US, every Monday night, Uh, We would do what some of you were doing this afternoon, we'd go out and evangelize. We'd typically take a card, because houses are way spread out in Texas in the open space on the prairie. We'd drive our car, knock on a door, talk to people about Jesus. One February night, I came up to the church and it was an ice storm. We have those in North Texas. Sheet ice, you can't even see it. It's as slick as a skating rink. Usually a hundred people there, I was the only one who made it. There was a table full of cards with names of lost, unchurched people. I looked around and said, nobody's here. I think I'll just go home. Have you ever had God speak to you louder than an audible voice? God said to me, you way-faced, lily-livered, spineless, pusillanimous wimp. It's something like that, it's a loose translation. If people were here, you'd go out, okay, Lord, I'll go. So I picked up a card, and the moment I saw the name, I put it down. Not that one. Truth be, it was the person I'd counseled with that I liked less than anybody I'd counseled with in a long time. He'd been to my office with his girlfriend because he was abusive and he'd thrown her off the balcony of his apartment into some brush and I told him what I thought about it. He didn't like me and I just liked him enough to get into heaven. (laughs) Okay God, and I remember driving up to his house and I was praying. I was a bold missionary. I was praying, I sure hope he's not home tonight. <laughs> Knocked on the door. This man came to me and he was a smart ally. But that night he was holding a little green Gideon New Testament. He said, I'm surprised to see you here. And I told, thought to myself, he doesn't know how surprised I am to be here. <laughs> Now listen, come close to me. This smart aleck, this unteachable abusive man through that screen said, you know I'm glad you stopped by. And he read to me from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I want you to tell me what this means. By grace, are you saved? Through faith, it's the gift of God. Would you tell me what that means? I said, uh, yes. I went in, sat down, and in 10 minutes, he'd given his life to Christ. Now, let me tell you this. God made an arrangement. And somebody here says, well, that was just an accident. If you think that was an accident, you think a printing plant would blow up and dictionaries would fall out of the sky. No, it was God's prearrangement. He did what it took to get this hard, Abusive, cynic to come to Christ. I saw him years later. And we talked together about that night when God did what it took. Now there may be somebody here tonight, you've seen it all, you've known it all, you can explain all this away. Probably somebody say, I know about churches. and I know about preachers. and I've met hypocrites and all that. Let me tell you about that, about preachers. I've been a preacher for 51 years. Most of them highly devoted, a few of them phonies, but let me tell you about every preacher, they don't have a heaven to send you to or a hell to let you be in. That's God. So just because there's a hypocritical preacher, that's beside the point. There's some bad doctors, but you're still gonna go to a doctor when you're sick. You know, it's interesting how we argue with ourselves. There's an interesting thing about every one of these four stories that came. Life's big questions, Jesus the answer. Only potential, Jesus saw who he could be. A clueless man, Jesus gave him a clue. He said, follow me. And an unteachable smart aleck, he did what it took. A miracle of timing. And he came with one thing they had to do in common. John the baptizer told all of them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As different as you may be getting into the line to follow Jesus, a cynic, a smart aleck, a materialist, an unbeliever, a this or a that, there's one line that everybody has to get in, and that is to follow the Lamb of God, the Son of God who took away the sin of the world. (laughs) There may be somebody, sin. It's interesting to me. Some people say, sin? I, you know, I, I've slipped up a few times, but on the whole, I'm about as good as average, really. If there's a plate glass window out here and I shoot it with a BB gun and a little pellet breaks it, it's just as broken as if I shot a bazooka and blew the whole window out. And that's the way God is about his law. The younger half-brother of Jesus, James, says, if you break it in one point, you've broken it all. Nobody has the right to be smug. Sometimes people will will tell me, well, I try to live by the Ten Commandments. Have you read them? (laughs) Even more than that, I've had people tell me complacently, well, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I say, have you ever read that? No, we've all broken God's law. And if you've broken it in one place, it's as much as breaking it in every place. Because God's absolutely perfect and he's not gonna let anybody ruin his heaven forever without being a blood washed born again Christian whose sins have been forgiven. Now somebody may be sitting here and saying, well I, I just, you know I just think I'll make it into heaven, really? Come close to me. Somebody here tonight, you don't like church, you don't like Christian people, you really don't particularly like Christian music. The Bible's kinda dull to you, and what I'm doing right now, you're saying, and I wish this would get over, and you're telling me you wanna spend forever and ever doing that? You see, you have to be changed to even wanna be in heaven. If you don't wanna be with God's people for an hour here, Do you think something magic is going to happen to you and you'll be with them forever and forever and forever when your crowd is somewhere else? See, that's what new birth means. It means suddenly your life is changed. Your attitudes are changed, your desires, your inclinations are changed. You were going this way and you turn around and you go this way by the grace of God. And then you come to love his word, his people, his praise and he makes you fit to be there with him forever and forever. You say, well, why are you preachers so urgent about it? We're urgent about it because there's a fierce urgency of the now. Every one of these first followers, when Jesus said it, they followed him. The enemy of your soul will never say, don't do this because it makes too much sense. He will tell you to wait and he'll wait you right into eternity. You say, well, why do you preachers keep talking to people about making a public decision? Couldn't I just do this privately? A Couple of answers about that. First of all, your life without Christ has not been private. You have publicly lived as a non-believer. You've publicly influenced people to go one way, and you need to publicly demonstrate I'm going another way. We don't live to ourselves, as John Donne's famous poem said, no man is an island, everyone's a part of the whole, and you have influence. But also life's biggest moments are public moments. Wonder what a bride would think if the bride were to come down the aisle of a church and to stand where brides stand. But her betrothed, her husband, stayed over here somewhere and said, I really don't wanna go out there can't we just do this privately? I don't want anybody to hear these vows. The bride would rightly be suspicious, wouldn't you think? No. You stand up and you step out. And you say, I'm taking this lady. She's taking, it's public. If that's true of human marriage, how much truer must it be of coming to follow Jesus Christ? He wants secret disciples. He wants people who stand up and step out. In fact, Paul put it more clearly, if you come to him, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I wonder who's here tonight, who'd say, tonight, I'd like to settle that once and all in my life. You wanna answer the big questions? Jesus. Your life has just been potential, you've started, you've stopped, you've lurched, you've dodged. It hasn't really started yet, Jesus. Clueless, I don't know what I'm gonna do next, Jesus. Cynical, unteachable, know-it-all, Jesus. It's just this simple. He didn't give any big words, huge syllogisms, undefinable concepts, he said two words over and over and over. Follow me. And tonight, you're going to have the opportunity to do just this. One of the ministers of the church is going to come now, and he's going to open this service and open this altar for you or you or you to say yes tonight. And along with these four stories, there'll be another story that'll be your story. May God bless you.